0: Claire's camera is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The New York Times says Ms. Huppert's presence, steady, warm, thoughtful, but with a casual air, keeps the entire enterprise classically comedic. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. I often wrestle with the desire to cover films or series that are truly unique and exciting and worthwhile, but not end up with a string of episodes that are all New York City centric. Thankfully I don't have this problem with the subject of this episode. Tell Me, Women Filmmakers, Women's Stories, a series programmed by Nellie Killian. Although Tell Me, originally screened at Metrograph in New York, it is intended to travel. So if you like what you hear, by all means contact Nellie Killian and ask your favorite theater to host it. But this series is great not just because it originated in New York, but because Tell Me showcases 34 films by female filmmakers who took the simple, radical step of allowing women space and time to talk about their lives. These films are in a variety of lengths, formats, and aesthetics, and many of them haven't been publicly screened in years. To better contextualize these sometimes obscure works, here's Nellie talking about what inspired her to create this unique program.
1: I'd originally seen the restoration of soft fiction here at Lincoln Center during um, projections reviews and avant-garde maybe in 2014. And it's a movie I'd seen before, um, I'd seen a lot of Chick Strand's films, I believe also here um, when there was a retrospective uh, shortly after she died. And um, seeing this beautiful restoration of soft fiction, which is a movie that combines so many of my interests in sort of experimental documentary and avant-garde film and feminist film. I thought it would be great to do something around this film, build a series around it. <laughs> the sort of intimacy of that film, the way way she's able to draw these women out to sort of tell these very complicated, unresolved stories. I thought that there was maybe something in that, and I started thinking of all these other movies that shared a similar sensibility, and that maybe there was something to this idea of a dynamic between a woman filmmaker and a woman subject. Um, Again, because that movie intersects uh, so many of my interests, like a lot of things came to mind that ended up in the series, But um, part of the reason I didn't do it just in 2014 is I was sort of like, I need to have a finer point on this. It's not really enough. It needs like a stronger thesis. And then, you know, reading all of this stuff this fall was so painful and so frustrating as someone who... Has been sort of invested in this sort of oral history. To see all these women who were in that New Yorker story, it was down to the details how similar those stories were, not in terms of what happened to them, obviously that was similar, but also in terms of how they reacted. You know, they all called a loved one to like tell them, and then, you know, the reporter says, We checked with their mother, we checked with their roommate, they confirmed. They all had the same. Sort of self recrimination, and all of them felt like they were doing it alone and like had the same doubt and everything. And I was just like, the same thing that makes me think this series maybe is not worthwhile or something, it doesn't need a finer point. You can just do it. The idea of like it not feeling important enough, I think, is something that this moment sort of corrected for me that it did seem like time. It did seem like something people would respond to. And also it seemed like it would provide that foundation for some people to know that like this has been going on a long time and that history is already there. You just have to tap into it.
0: Right. And I I mean, what struck me watching the films is that Janie's Janie and the women's film both begin with women talking about what they thought their married life was going to be like. And it's this totally idealized fantasy because candy
1: bars and Pepsi Cola yeah yeah Yeah. or you know uh all my problems would be fixed it would be fine and also escaping abusive childhood homes exactly at the
2: beginning I was happy I was really happy because all I really wanted was a house of my own to participate in to cook and clean and do what I, I well I really didn't like cooking and cleaning but I had done it all my life so it wasn't a real strain. really didn't know other things existed in life because I was only really a child myself he was the first boy I ever went steady with you know like I was only 15 and I knew the only way to escape was like if if I went to my mother and said I have to get married right I couldn't go to her and say mom I want to get married I'm 15 but I want to get married you know so I got pregnant and I got married Mm
0: throughout this series, again and again you find, you know, as was true with Me Too, there's this real continuity of issues across, you know, uh, Janie's Janie is in New Jersey, but the women's film was shot a few years later in um, San Francisco. You know, even things that, um, women's response,
1: the things that the French women say, there's this continuity. It is interesting that like, all of this sort of work was done. And, I mean, when you watch those movies, you see that it's work. The women's film and Janie's Janie are these incredible movies that start with women talking and start with women talking to each other and then quickly move into organizing and action. And they were designed – I mean, Third World Newsreel has, like, very specific – had very specific sort of mandate that they, um, you know, they at that time especially – their films were organizing tools, weapons, as many of the people in the collective called them. And they wanted them to be shown to a group of women who was starting a consciousness-raising group to sort of get the ball rolling. But they were about that sort of ferment. And what's amazing to me is it seems to come so naturally through these conversations that um, how intersectional the problems are, that these women, as soon as they kind of gain empathy for themselves, the way that that sort of just catalyzes this empathy for people unlike them and people with different problems and how can I help? And that is, I mean, it's really moving and it's really powerful and just about improving people's lives. There is this sort of physical physical needs that these women are addressing, not just sort of the ways in which they've felt emotionally manipulated, intellectually not allowed to sort of develop the the way they wanted to. Like there's all these ways that they felt boxed in, but then they also are just like, first step, daycare center, so that we can like start working on this stuff. Like first step, like communal kitchen, so that like if one person is short one month, no one's kids are gonna go hungry. That sort of stuff is just so inspirational. Because so
2: much of our oppression It's put down individually, like we don't even realize what goes on until we sit and compare it with other women and say, damn, the same thing happened to me. You find out over and over again. That's why, like, to break out of our, our oppression, you know, just what you said about the support, you know, that's so necessary. We have to do it. Many of us have defined ourselves only in terms of men. We often think we have no identity for ourselves without them. We've been conditioned by society to always lean on someone else for our support, to be carried over the threshold. We need the women's movement to know how to be good fighters because as women we've been taught to be passive in the, in the face of aggression. For me as a woman, once I realize how oppressed I am and I keep realizing it more and more every day, realizing one more instance in which I never
1: knew I was oppressed before, there's just no turning back. You can't back up because it's yourself. The nature of the series, like, while the work is very diverse, I did feel a very strong connection to this, like, central dynamic that I talked about before, that I really wanted to be sort of between women, like, where people are being drawn out, people tell sort of uh, often really long stories to the camera, you know, really complicated stories to the camera, that there's, like, a expansive storytelling. So in that sense, it do, it immediately narrows it down. I didn't want there to be a lot of autobiographical film. There's a lot of women filmmakers who made incredible work that are more memoirs. But again, I wanted it to be about opening up this space between two people. And once it's that, and then, you know, a lot of these filmmakers have also made work that aren't about talking. So In a sense, it did kind of narrow itself down. And then whenever you're doing a program like this, where everything has to fit on a program, and I mean, believe me, I could have done 20 programs.
0: And yeah, and these are conversations that are coming up again, and it's like, well, why don't these films screen more often? Is it a access issue? Like, why aren't these more screened? And what was the process of you sort of finding them?
1: There are more well-known movies in the series. Uh, Privilege, Yvonne Rainer's movie, plays more often, although probably not as often as it should. Uh, You know, Soft Fiction, it's a new 16-millimeter print from Canyon Cinema. I think that has, like, screened more widely in the last several years. But, you know, it's a lot of short work. Um, It's a lot of work that's really outside of traditional distribution channels, not just even in terms of it being experimental, but things that were... Distributed by sort of like political collectives, um, things that uh, are more politically minded sort of filmmaking collectives, um, things that just the filmmaker has the rights to. Um, I guess they're off a lot of people's radar. Um, I mean, some of these movies I saw and, you know, it it was a process of I had this idea. I had like sort of a constellation of films around it. And then I started going around to people and asking if they had other ideas for it and people turned me on to a lot of stuff that I'd never heard of and seeing a lot of these movies. I mean, Betty tells her story. I feel like should be shown to like every documentary class and it's insane that it isn't, it's like this perfect sort of study in like documentary performance. And, um, it, it just deserves to be like a, a model for people. Like when they're thinking through these ideas, And other ones are just so fun. Like something like Yudi is like a pleasure. But again, it's a 25 minute portrait of like a woman on the Lower East Side. Like, I don't know. I mean, I'm a programmer and I've never showed it before. Um, Like when it comes up that that would be like appropriate to put into a program. It is a little more esoteric. Franza Woods, the
0: director of Fanny's film, she only made two films. That's the other thing. I I mean, mean, and and it's like, but both of them are so good, and it's like, why not? I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of reasons why not more, but it's like, it it, again, it comes. I think it's sort of touching at this issue of, you know, when you make a program i think
1: she's like painting in the south of france okay well she's living a better life than fucking being here man oh my god that was the last thing i that's what i heard (laughs) as of last year that's
0: well yeah bless her yes um but the the but you know the challenge of that being like not really you know it's a 15 minute film it is shot in black and white it is not very well known it's like I think a lot of times when people are programming things it is an issue of access but it's also an issue of time and what audiences like finding those sort of neat breaks you know for the benefit of the theater staff but also for the benefit of just like not losing your mind while you're creating a program so it's sometimes these things do slip through the cracks for like reasons that are not just ignorance.
1: I've done a number of interviews around the series and a couple people have asked you know, you don't hear about these filmmakers the way you hear about even a more obscure, maybe male director. And it's like, this woman made two short films. They deserve to be known, of of course, but like there is that sort of built-in thing of like people who get to continue making work, who get to make work on a larger scale. Like, of course, that is just a snowball effect of like what ends up being in the culture that like having to kind of go through and, you know, Maybe be familiar with New Day films and know that they made a lot of interesting work with a lot of women who you might not be familiar with. And some names that you definitely are familiar with, uh, people who've won Academy Awards and things worked with them. But then you start to go through and say, well, I'll just like watch these. And, you know, this one sounds interesting. It's uh, a movie about two women sort of making an alternative family life and like the Catskills. Yeah yeah yeah, no, no. yeah like but i'll like, watch that yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but
0: that's the thing because yeah, it's, it's like and, it, and i think also it's just because again I, I i mean obviously part of it is just like so these you know these films showed at like a lesbian film festival in 1977 and then they didn't get screened again and it's like because they are sort of put in these boxes it's like oh this is like the gay box this is the black gay box this is like this you know and 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 i love that this program explodes that and it's like no it's all types of women you can have a program with all types of women and it's fine and it's like actually very enlightening to see again the issues that there's some certain universal problems that they have but also the way in which they impact them is unique to their race class immigration status stuff like that
1: yeah I mean in a sense I mean this is a program of women's films like in a way it still is it's not as if I'm I showed these movies in a program of just independent shorts from the 1970s Uh, which you know and I've done a number of programs like this I'm I'm interested in going into these moments and I like doing research which I think a lot of people maybe don't I mean, it's, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I really, not that people don't. Maybe it's an unknown pleasure because like drilling down into something is really exciting and really fun. And being somewhere like New York where there's so many incredible resources, it's like an amazing thing to get to do. And if you work somewhere where you're a programmer and you have the time to like research series Like, you should definitely be taking full advantage of it.
0: The first of these films we'll take a closer look at is Claire Simone's Mimi, which subtly plays with expectations around female art and female narratives. Here's...
3: Sierra Pettengill, I'm a filmmaker and a sometime contributor to Freeze magazine.
0: And...
4: Faree Hazaman, I'm a documentary filmmaker and film comment contributor and the production manager at Field of Vision. She
3: made it in 2003, um, and it's shot on film, and there's a real timelessness to it, which is, I think, very important um, and also sort of confusing. And so the film just follows this middle-aged woman. It looks like she's in her late 50s, um, who's a friend of Claire Simone and who is, by all accounts, just an ordinary person. Um, And she's walking through the French countryside, And as she comes to certain spots that sometimes have something to do with her life and sometimes have nothing to do with her life, she's just telling stories. Um, And a lot of the film is shot in these kind of medium shots to close-ups where you're just looking at her face as she talks. But there's this, you know, that sounds like a kind of challenging structuralist film in a way because nothing happens. But the cinematography often you know, Mimi's telling a story and the camera just kind of floats over and you're looking at dirt on the steps next to her hand for a minute. And then it just kind of makes its way back. And and so there's this constant connecting of of what Mimi's talking about to the place she's in. And the fact that a lot of those places are not the place she's talking about adds this friction to it. So watching it the second time as part of this series, I realized there are all these great moments where the present day environment often rejects the memories that Mimi's putting onto it. So she's telling this really emotional story about a lesbian lover she had in her, it seems like early 20s and this really like torrid moment where they had to say goodbye because this woman was getting married and, and they found this hotel and they Without saying a word, they ran up to it and, and the camera is finding a similar hotel and, and panning across these windows and there's a young woman standing in the window and it's perfect, right? It's like the illustration of this and the woman kind of makes eye contact with the camera and it's just like, no, and backs off and like gets out of view. Those moments where you're kind of reminded of the the gap between the present and the past and, and the quality of the film, you really don't know wear when you are and mimi is wearing this uh, she's amazing she's amazing looking she's amazing face but she's wearing a hard rock cafe rome t-shirt throughout the whole movie which is just not something you would put a subject in and so it all again it gives this idea of like oh i just happened upon mimi and followed her around but claire simone said basically called what she was wearing a costume and said you know she always wears the same blouse You know, the documentary is to all effects and purposes constructed. And to stress that fact, I made her wear a costume. And so the fact that you would put her in this, what looks like a shirt you'd paint a house in, and it forces you to be reading in the film, it's a real deliberate choice. And it adds another layer of like, who is this person? What class is she in? What year are we in? Which is something that that causes all this interest in the film that I don't think you would necessarily pick up on what she's doing so deliberately.
0: The other people besides Mimi who are there because I think those people really um, again sometimes it's made to seem like oh this is an accident and then other times it's more ambiguous what what these people are doing or who they are.
3: She runs into some strangers and she runs into a friend of hers who just starts playing a song for her on the bridge and then she goes to the place she's currently living and and talks to, and that that man returns, and then she's also talking to people who have lived in that town for a long time. I think the most amazing and remarkable scene is um, sort of towards the beginning, and she's telling this story about uh, saying goodbye to her brother with her mother. She's a great storyteller. and She's in this very poetic, you know, nostalgic space, and like I could hear the whistle of the train as it went over the bridge, and and the, this man walks by, and they're up against the gate, and he. He's just a train aficionado, and he's been filming trains and making audio recordings of them. Um, and then he launches into this incredibly heartfelt story about what trains mean to him. And then they, end, and he's got all these models in his pocket. So it just, it, it like, suddenly breathes with this incredible life. Um, but this is another moment for me where I felt like the real world was kind of pushing back again so Mimi's still in her headspace and she's talking to him about you know and he puts on headphones and is playing her a recording of a train which is just, just an incredible documentary moment and she's still on her like and that's how it would sound over the bridge and he's like well this is this specific train and this is what it sounds like <laughs> when it's revving up and going faster And to, and so they're basically on their own narrative storyline, sharing a moment and sharing headphones and sharing a space and sharing a sound, you know, if, whether it's accident or not, you, it doesn't even matter. It's just such a brilliant interaction to watch.
0: It's speaking to the way in which different people are perceiving this same space incredibly differently and that for him, it's this mix of very functional things that he can sort of like take for himself. It's its a recording I can take. It's a train model I can have out. Um, I can wave to the guy. Um, but then also it's an emo- it's clearly pleasurable for him, too.
4: There's that tension between uh, how your attention is immediately focused and um, filtered through this particular woman and then what's happening in the frame. That's like th- that's r- that's real real life <laughs> versus what you're like um, immediately sort of attracted to as representing real life. Like it's actually, um, it's it's not just who you're seeing, but the fact that your gaze is widened because of this form.
3: Yeah. Yeah. There And there's another a similar moment where she's telling her story of coming out, um, which involved the church. And is it's really um, moving. And she's in front of a church that I'm not sure is the same one or one that remind the doors remind her of that church. And she's telling the story and there's a um a bank of scooters in front of in the the foreground of the shot and there's a couple that realize that they're being filmed so they duck behind the scooters to stay out of the shot and then you kind of forget about them and she's telling a very long story and then eventually they get tired or bored or something and they just kind of pop up look at the camera and and try to like scurry off and of course claire simone could have redone that story and but they're there for a reason you know they're they're kind of getting they're they're literally between the camera and the storytelling and there i think that there's a lot happening in that when you're when you're interrupting
0: that view you mentioned the the crazy costuming rightly so um and then this the train guy these are all things again that make us question our relationship to this film and it's like should this really be here And the answer is yes. The answer is yes because she chose to include it in the film. The series is focused on documentaries and women are often associated with the idea that a female narrative, even if it's explicitly stated as fiction, is somehow autobiographical, that she's not really inventing anything. And documentaries, likewise, are often not seen as regular films, right? There's uh, the main slate of films and then there's a documentary sidebar like they're not really the same footing and I guess how do you feel about this series sort of taking both of those things on
3: that's something I thought about a lot when I was trying to write about her earlier film graduation because it both in Mimi and that film her way of shooting and editing is so casual and I think that's comes from confidence really and it's easy to watch these films and not Kind of pick up on how deliberate that perspective is because it's it's so fluid. It seems so natural, um, and and when you rewatch them and realize exactly what she's doing, and then read some of her interviews, she is so careful about what she's shooting. In Mimi, it's shot over several days, and she's her main character, um, her friend Mimi Chiola, is wearing the same clothes throughout. There's a lot of attention that goes to really constructing a production that looks really seamless and and kind of tossed off. There's something kind of female to me about that, which is um, the naturalness and that like the the, idea of virtuosity that doesn't need to be kind of flashy. And that comes in a real like dedicated intimacy, which I think is what she's doing in her work.
4: I think that there's often a sense that men are people who push boundaries in formal uh, inventiveness and in filmmaking and that we're used to seeing experimentation from them. So I look at this program not just in terms of the fact that it's documentary focused and that's like a lot of what Sierra and I love, <laughs> um, but also that it's going to works that aren't seen as often and that are like kind of fucking weird and special and um, and speak to Individual women's abilities to work in that kind of language as well.
3: When I'm trying to think about, so why is this? You know, I I kind of coined this phrase or or didn't, which is perambulatory memoir, which is what it feels like. And what is it about the combination of this walk, they're constantly walking, with this storytelling that works? And I I uh, returned to this Virginia Woolf essay called Street Haunting and. Again, I don't, you know, I don't want to overstate that this is a particularly female thing, but I think something about the act of walking um, and what it allows you to do in paying close attention to the ordinary and in kind of enlivening that, I think that I think Mimi is doing a very similar thing to what Virginia Woolf describes in that um, in that essay, and and she kind of comes to in, in part a conclusion that it kind of you break your your. The shell that your body normally inhabits, and you become one enormous eye, is her phrase. And and just thinking about like the that's a really radical thing to do is to train that enormous eye on a, a very ordinary, a middle aged woman who has had a regular life, and uh, that is a radical act somehow. Still, and and when I found that Variety review, which says. Uh, it's written by a gentleman um it's it's borderline pointless and it's obsession with an ordinary woman and i was like th- that's exactly it that you know the fact that the training that gaze on this woman would be deemed pointless
0: it's like many things that are called feminism that it's classic misinterpretation of american feminism where it's like women need to be superheroes all the time and like they do everything and it's like no, well, that no. well
3: that's also a problem in documentary it's yeah. like what w- we always look at the exceptional and then i think that that's a kind of long-standing problem i have especially with like liberal leaning documentary filmmaking which is in always showing someone who's overcoming something you're giving the impression that this is how that the structural problems don't actually exist
0: it's it's their fault for not doing exactly. it exactly yeah. right
3: and so Yeah, it's pointless to show unexceptional people. Yeah, totally, dude.
4: I mean, I wish we lived in a world where it was pointless to show, like, I don't know, brown people or queer people or women just doing normal (laughs) shit, but we don't yet. So congratulations. We're like each a tool of the revolution, I guess.
0: We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. A New York Times and Village Voice critics pick, Claire's camera is now playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center with Isabel Huppert and Kim Min-hee. The South Korean director Hong Sang-soo condenses a grand melodrama of work, love and art into a brisk 69 minute roundelay of chance meetings and intimate confessions. Claire and Man-hee wander the seaside resort town, working to better understand Man-hee's firing while also learning the power of images to transform us. A Cinema Guild release, Claire's camera is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.
2: Um, I came to see something I rarely get to see in the the cinema, a point of view that is rarely seen, and I came to be very excited by it, (laughs) hopefully. (laughs) And why did you come tonight? Uh, I'd like to see something positive,
0: something different. Many of the films in this series are named after women. Judy, Janie's Janie, Veronica, and the incredible Suzanne Suzanne, a 1982 film by Camille Billops and James Hatch about one of her nieces.
2: I remember, I remember when I used to be in there in, in the room, and, I, and I used, you know, I had to strip down completely. And one time, there's one that always stands out the most was when he came in here with me. He was drunk, and he had a fan belt. And the hook got caught in my thigh. And, and being drunk, he thought that He had caught on to the bedspread, so he kept pulling it, you know. And it's like, you know, I wouldn't, you know, I would scream, but he wanted, I think he wanted me to cry, and I wouldn't. And and it's like, you know, I started bleeding. And um, I guess you realize what had happened, and that's when he
1: stopped. Camille Billups made a number of movies that feature members of her family, and I mean, as do many of the films in this series, where uh, the connection between the women the director and the subject is often very close, whether it's a friend or family member. The way that Camille Billups sort of turned the camera on her own family is fascinating throughout her work and so raw. In this case, it's her niece who talks about the sort of abuse she experienced at the hand of her father And it's all done sort of in the house with her brother and her mother. And you occasionally see Camille in like a reflection. And she's talking about how it set her on this trajectory for her life. That was very self-destructive. And it's very hard to listen to her talk about all of this and also about the ways in which her brother, her mother knew and how it was enabled within the house and also the ways in which they were or weren't also victims of the father and also how they all still love the father and things. I mean, like the complete spectrum of this dynamic in the house. And it sort of moves from this sort of more straightforward documentary to this kind of like beautiful moment at the end where her mother and her are able to have the conversation that they were never able to have about why her mother wasn't able to protect her and why the ways in which she suffered at the hand of the father as well. I mean, it's really, really moving. And it feels like a, a true moment of catharsis for these two women done in a way that is staged. with a, a, It's done with a level of artifice, but it is a true moment of catharsis. I love that film in a personal way and again
4: like speaking to her approach as a filmmaker and when it comes to the former I think you know let's say for a minute that it is true that um, women tend to tell more personal narratives first of all if that's the case why is that automatically problematic or like if that's an association with women why is it immediately considered weaker or less valuable and then in the Latter case of like the creative approach of the film, I think, uh, in ways that are problematic to everybody, not just women, um, we sometimes talk about this moment where there's been a lot of exciting work uh, in terms of the documentary form in, you know, bl- uh, blurring fiction reality line, um, doing more stylized or staged. Um, Um, segments particularly when it comes to personal stories where where it seems challenging to apply that kind of filter in hindsight here's this filmmaker from decades ago who did this work who's been completely overlooked and it's not that other people who haven't played with um like fiction nonfiction, doc form or hybrid form never get spoken of we occasionally remember that it wasn't invented 10 years ago uh but don't talk about camille billaps and i have to think that that's because she's a woman of color and i think that her story and the kinds of themes that she's exploring not as some grander political statement but because they are an inherent part of her identity and that of her daughter just simply didn't rate as meaningful to a larger community for a long time.
0: Yeah, no, or or that it's a specialty item right. and that it's like you can only access it when you're specifically looking for these particular types of a subset of a subset of a specialty item, right? It should always be included and obviously... I think just speaking in terms of like larger film history, all of film history, there's so much stuff that is lost, that is misplaced, that you just can't, that was once widely available and now is sort of gone because film preservation is not always there to save items like this. But I, yeah, it's, I mean, the end sequence where Suzanne and her mother are standing in this black room, not facing each other having this really frank conversation about the way Suzanne's father beat both of them is just it's it's truly breathtaking and and the rest of the film is also very everyone again like I said is so perceptive and just really still but still hurting from The aftermath of not being beautiful like mom was or feeling like dad had a certain possession of her because she looked more like him. like All of these amazing little things that exist in a family that don't get maybe spoken about in a narrative film that can't. Or I think that sometimes when a film does such
4: a beautiful and emotionally resonant job of exploring issues of identity and it happens to be directed by a woman, what's credited to the woman is like her... The value as a subject. Like, oh, wow, it was so interesting. You were so open. You were so raw on camera and that's what I love about your film and that film is a perfect example because they're very um, conspicuous stylistic elements where it's not just that she happens to be interesting, although she is this total like force on screen, um, but that it's so smartly and wonderfully crafted like it, it's um the, the way that it's edited the choices that she make that she made casually like she I sometimes struggle like a few years into a film career to give myself permission to say like you can try this one thing or you can you can make this strange choice and not have to have it be um something that defines the film like I always thought that it, that if you make a strange stylistic choice it has to be that's the point of the film or that's the entire language that you're speaking throughout it as a filmmaker was totally wowed by her boldness in veering in these different directions and it's completely cohesive and that's not easy to pull off and it's not just because she's cool or nice.
2: Suzanne? Uh Uh-huh? Who do you look like? Do you look like your mother or your father?
1: Like my father. Yeah? Mm-hmm. How about, who does Michael look like? Mom's. Mm-hmm. I
2: have browning features, puffy eyes, sort of sit back into the head. Billy, do you remember that uh, time you were telling me about when Suzanne's friends would come? Yes. And they would compare the two of you together? Oh, it would make me so. In the very beginning, I didn't really pay that much attention to it. But then later on, I began to watch Suzanne's face. And um, Susan would bring some new friend by and say, oh, I want you to meet my mother. And they say, oh, how do you do, Mrs. Browning? And then they turn to Suzanne, well, what the hell ever happened to you? And that would just really get me. I I didn't like it because they were making too much of a comparison. And I realized at that time that Suzanne did not like that at all.
1: There's so much in that movie. I mean, they talk about the reason she suffered more was because she was the favorite and because she looked like him. And like all of these dynamics that are just so... Again, none of this is straightforward. That's the other thing that in this moment, it is like, tell me so we can address it. But it's like, these aren't issues that can, are easily addressed. Um, they're all so multifaceted. And a lot of the movies deal with like trauma. And I specifically didn't want it to be just women talking about trauma. I mean, it was a thing that annoyed me a little bit in this whole moment of listening to women that you shouldn't just listen to women because like they need an outlet for talking about bad things that happened to them. Like that it's some sort of duty and like, it's also so there was also so much pressure on women to tell these stories, you know, women who didn't for whatever reason, which you don't have to share bad things that happen with you with anyone unless you choose to. And, like, this idea that, like, people are being, like, shamed for not coming forward earlier and everything. And it's like, you know, just whatever women want to talk about, I'm here for it. Like, it's not just about listening, uh, you know, being sort of a, you know, sounding board for this, for when they want to talk about something. When they need to talk about something because they need to redress an injustice that happened to them.
0: Right. And I think, you know, baby doll. It's a very celebratory film. Like, that yeah. movie is so much fun. And it's, you know, it's like...
1: They have great attitudes. Yeah. yeah. They, they have great music and great clothes. And-, and they really lay it out that it is this whole thing of, like, that they get judged for what they do, dancing, for men. But all they're doing is giving men exactly what they want, and men are never judged for what they want. Women are only judged for how they react to what men want.
2: I think that sometimes you see people being a little more unhinged you know they they feel you know now they can sort of let out their spite and nobody that counts is going to catch them they they want to hear about how the people act so awful and they want to hear about want to hear women like speaking freely but it's, it's just like, like that S&M thing where the woman is supposed to be the dominatrix, but what's domination about tying some guy up and doing to him exactly what he wants done? I don't feel personally degraded by what I do. I don't feel cheapened by what I do. But unfortunately, it is the attitude of the men and of the patrons that we are supposed to be,
0: quote unquote, entertaining who force you into the position of degradation and act that you, I mean, they want to see it and it's exactly, you're giving them
2: exactly what they want but once you do, they turn around and they throw it in your face. The thing about it that's degrading is not me or anything I do, it's the real, and it's, it's like such a crushing burden of all these jerks and their twisted conceptions of what's right and what's wrong.
0: The questions of socialization and that, you know, maybe like clothesline, for instance, mm. that's such an interesting oh, film because it starts with, you know, women just sort of being like, I hate doing my husband's clothes and he wants them like this. Or I take pride in it or and then there's this incredible part where they talk about clotheslines and how that clotheslines can be this expression of creativity that they judge the people, you know, judge what clothes are on the clothesline. They want to know more about the people, like all these different conflicting feelings. And that is sort of like this range of experiences and that, you know, it may be not all of the the responses are the right response. First of all, there was a particular art about hanging
2: your clothes on the line. And everybody had clotheslines, and you looked at your neighbor's clothes. You really did, and you sort of measured her that way. When I look at other women's clotheslines, I want to know more about them. If he had a spot on his shirt, you were rotten. If your child had a spot, believe me, you were the world's worst. Sometimes they even hang them by color, which fascinates me, all the white shirts. All the the socks, all the white socks, all the navy blue socks. I think that it evokes the ghosts of the people that wore them. Hon, is my shirt ready? They're like pieces of sculpture. Women who don't consider themselves artistic put a great deal of themselves into their household tasks.
1: Well, that's... I mean, to me, that's one that, like, really sums up a lot of these ideas in the series because, first of all, the print is from the New York Public Library, as are many of the prints in the series. Um, And the rights were with uh, Folkways, which distributes a lot of American folk music and other things like that. And that movie... It is this sort of oral history of all these women talking about how onerous doing the laundry was without washing machine, dryer. And also this kind of celebration of like this folk art of hanging your clothes out. And while all of the women acknowledge the sort of work that went into it, a lot of the women took a lot of pride in it as well. And like that's, you know, it is this double-edged thing that because it's women's work, it's never been valued. And it's incredibly frustrating for all these women that they're spending four hours a day doing laundry, and they come home and their husbands say, what'd you do all day? Uh, <laughs> and, you know, not acknowledging all the invisible work that goes on. The movies making visible not just the labor, but also how the beauty and the way that they did it and, like, the sort of performance of it. And it's like the tasks themselves, there's this... <laughs> It's not as if doing household chores or laundry is in and of itself degrading. What's degrading are like the larger systems that don't value that work and make it something that's like an obligation for half the population. And like, some, you know, there's the one woman in clotheslines that I love so much who talks about tying up the laundry in pink ribbons and how much pride she took in it. And also, like, the woman who talks about, like, the dreams that her mother had that, like, the laundry was always a premonition and things that it's like, this is actually, there's, like, a lot of beauty in this and it's wrong for these women's husbands not to appreciate it. And it's also, like, to just um, cast off the idea that what these women put into doing the laundry is somehow quaint or just not really worthwhile or mindless is also just completely wrong because like they put out these beautiful lines for their neighborhood and wash the drapes and like you know made everything nice while doing a bunch of other stuff and um that's like the complexity that I hope a lot of movies get at that it is like you can have a lot of different feelings about doing the laundry and like whatever don't write it off You've been listening to the
0: Film Comment Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Ripold, with music by Greg Anji. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bimonthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Or check out our app, available on Android, Kindle, and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. A New York Times and Village Voice Critics' Pick, Claire's Camera is now playing at the Film Society of Lincoln Center with Isabelle Huppert and Kim Min-hee, The South Korean director Hong Sang-soo condenses a grand melodrama of work, love, and art into a brisk 69-minute roundelay of chance meetings and intimate confessions. Claire and Man-hee wander the seaside resort town, working to better understand Man-hee's firing, while also learning the power of images to transform us. A Cinema Guild release, Claire's camera is now playing exclusively at the Film Society of Lincoln Center.